So I've noticed a principle at work in our universe. I'm sure it's not in everything in the universe, but there is a principle at work in the universe that goes something like this. But sometimes, if you want to achieve the outcome that you desire, you have to actually do the, act, the exact opposite of the thing you would think you need to do in order to achieve it. Call it the Costanza principle or something. You sometimes have to do the exact opposite of what your instincts are in order to get the outcome that you desire. I'll, uh, I'll give you an example from my 22 years of preaching in this church, which is a long time, I realized this week. 22 years since I preached my first sermon in this church. And the lesson that I've learned in the last 22 years is that if you, if you want to thoroughly learn a lesson... You have to teach that lesson to somebody else first. That actually, the, the teaching is the means to the learning rather than being the result. You know, normally you would think, well, I have to learn the lesson thoroughly, and once I've learned it, then I'm authorized to teach it to somebody else. And the, the truth is that it's actually the reverse. If you want to learn, the, you cannot learn a lesson completely until you've taught it to somebody else. It's the exact opposite of what you would think. It's true, um, my accountant has said to me that human beings are wired in exactly the wrong way to invest money in the stock market. He said, all of our instincts are wrong when it comes to the stock market. He said, if you want to make money on the stock market, you have to sell when the stock is booming and purchase when the stock is plummeting. And our instincts are doing the, to do the exact opposite. If the stock's going down, you're like, I can get rid of this thing. He said, no, 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 buy more of it. You, you have to do the exact opposite of what you would think is true if you want to be successful. I think I've seen the principle to be true in parenting. That if you commit to parenting your child, in the end, you will become their friend. But if you desire to be the friend of your child, you will forfeit the right to be their parent. If the goal is to be your kid's friend, you have to do the exact opposite of what you... It's the Costanza principle. You have to do the exact opposite. And I think... That that principle, something of that principle is true when it comes to the experience of community. But if you want to be a person who experiences community, intimacy, closeness with other people, in some ways you have to do the exact opposite of what you think you have to do in order to experience that. See, this is what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks in this Connected series. We've been talking about how God wants to create in our midst, out of the community of faith, a community of radical inclusivity. You remember that Ben talked a couple of weeks ago about how the inclusivity of the community of faith is rooted in the heart of inclusivity that comes from God. That God is so desperately in love with every single one of us that he has pursued us to the nth degree in order to include us in his family, to involve us in relationship with him in what he is doing in the world. You'll remember if you were here that Ben told that fictitious story. Pause for effect. Ben told that fictitious story about the man who loved the car that he created so much that he was willing to pay any price in order to have it back just for himself. And that's exactly what God has done 
for you and for me, for each one of us in Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ to live and to die because he loves the you that he created as his masterpiece, as his handiwork so much that he was willing to pay any price in order to have you back, to include you in his family, to invite you into relationship with him so that you would belong to him. And the truth is, that in as much as we respond to the love of God and are included in a relationship with him, to the degree that we're connected to him, that's the degree that we are connected with each other. Because out of this collection of people that God is connecting with, he is joining us together in a community of radical inclusion. In Ephesians chapter 2, this was the chapter Ben was working through. He didn't read these verses. We read them last week in worship. But he says, consequently, because of what Jesus has done, You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also with members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. He's using a building metaphor. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul says this, because of what Jesus has done, Those who are outsiders, those who are foreigners, are now within the community of faith. They are now included as full-fledged citizens together of the kingdom. Citizens who are united together in the solidarity, in the unity of the kingdom of God. The same way that we will all, as citizens of Canada, be united together two weeks from now as Canada is beating whoever happens to be the runner-up in the gold medal game in men's hockey. Right In that day, we will be fellow citizens united together in solidarity, joined by our common allegiances in an inseparable way. And anybody who's cheering for the other team, frankly, just isn't a citizen of Canada. We're united, we're one, we're bonded together. And not just as citizens, but as family as brothers and sisters living with each other like brothers and sisters when brothers and sisters are behaving the way brothers and sisters are supposed to behave. I don't know if you've ever watched the show Parenthood. I've been watching it lately, and my goodness, these four siblings are more involved and engaged in each other's lives in a single episode than my siblings are in like an entire year. It is, it is frightening. It's a little bit creepy, actually. But it's just, it's family being family. And that's what Paul says. And because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you're not only joined to him, but you're joined to each other. Take a look around the room. This is your family. These are the people to whom you're joined together as brothers and sisters. You belong here. The problem is it doesn't always feel like that. That's not always our experience that we feel like we belong. And last week we talked about one of the reasons why that is. Because sometimes we label each other and judge each other in pride and we communicate to each other, there's no place for you in my life. Um, We sort of the connection guys would say we kind of turn our noses up at each other and say, I don't, I don't need you. 
because we're too busy playing the social stock market, right? We're investing in those high yield people and relationships, things that are gonna help our stock relationally and in the community help our stock go up and we avoid investing in those losers who are just gonna drag us down. And we talked last week about how there's just no place for that in the community of faith. That all of the categories and labels and all of the ways that we judge each other everywhere else just does not belong among people of faith who are in community together, who are family with each other in Christ. It just does That all the old labels of rich and poor and old and young and male and female and um, white collar and blue collar and all the ways which we judge each other based on age and look and weight and size and dress and sexual orientation, all of these labels that we slap in, they're all irrelevant in the body of Christ because in the body of Christ, we love each other as fellow citizens joined together in solidarity. Two weeks from today, you will high five the person next to you and you will not care how old that person is, how young they are, how rich they are. You won't care anything about them except that they are fellow citizen with you and cheering for Canada. It's the same as in family. In family, those labels are irrelevant in family. You just love each other. That's how family works. And Paul says, that's the way it is in the body of Christ. That's the way it is in the family of faith. That without labels, we love each other. We would never turn our noses up and say, I don't need you. But this morning, I want to talk about another way in which community gets disrupted. And it has less to do with how we look at each other and has more to do with how we look at ourselves. It has less to do with whatever propensity some of us may have of turning our nose up at each other and saying, I don't need you. And it has a lot more to do with the way we might turn our nose down and say in shame, I don't know why anyone would need me. It's less about, you know, who are you to want to be friends with me? And it's more about who am I to be friends with anybody? And we withdraw and stand back and we wait for somebody to validate us and invite us into community. And that kind of attitude, that kind of way of looking at ourselves and that kind of way of relating to the rest of the community is equally destructive to the experience of the kind of radically inclusive community that the Bible describes in the church. It's entirely contrary to the heart of God and to the life of Jesus Christ. See, because if you look at the way Jesus lived, you read the Gospels, what you discover very quickly is that Jesus never, ever, ever looked at a human being and thought of them as being beneath his dignity or not worth investing in. Jesus doesn't know about people who are not worth investing in. In fact, it got him in trouble in Matthew chapter, or sorry, Luke 15. I'm so used to saying Matthew. In Luke 15, Jesus, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now the tax collectors are like this combination of traitors against their country and the ancient mob. That's sort of who that is. And the sinners are just anybody with a notorious reputation for being immoral. They were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the super religious types, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That was their complaint. Their complaint about Jesus was that he wasn't discriminating enough in the kind of people he hung around. Because their attitude was, if he just knew what kind of people these were, he wouldn't be spending time with them. He certainly wouldn't be eating with them. right? Because eating together in the ancient world, and even actually in places in the contemporary world, and I would even say it echoes in North American culture a little bit, that to eat together is to extend the offer of friendship to someone. 
to say, I love you and I trust you and I forgive you and I welcome you. And it's basically to announce publicly that you're equals, that you're peers. In ancient world, the rich would sometimes feed the poor. They'd offer them food, but they would never eat together. They'd want it to be crystal clear. I am not like you. And here's Jesus with these mob bosses and notorious sinners eating together at the same table saying, hey, I'm just one of the gang. We're all friends. And in fact, it was, it was more scandalous than that because it, says, it doesn't just say he was eating with them. It says he welcomes them. That Jesus was in the habit of inviting people into his home. And that was even more risky because to invite someone into your home was to actually communicate honor to them. It was to say in kind of a way, I can't believe that you would honor me with your presence in my home. And there was a whole cultural ritual around welcome when a guest showed up at your house and you lavished on them this flourish of compliments and flattery and all as a way of elevating them and saying, you, you just don't understand how honored I am that you would be with me together in my home, that you would honor me with your presence. And the Pharisees were kind of saying, like, not only does he eat with them as equals, he kind of actually even looks up to them because he's inviting them into his home. And it was a real problem for them that Jesus would associate so closely with people that in their minds did not, have any social value. And it says in Luke 15 that Jesus told them this parable. He says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus says, guys, I want to tell you a story. Imagine you were a woman, which was in the ancient world, a horrendously insulting thing to say to a group of men. And it's Jesus' heart for inclusivity coming through. He's kind of jabbing and saying, stop being offended at the idea of being equated with a woman. But he says, imagine that you're a peasant woman, a poor woman. Hardly have a penny to your name kind of poverty where you can't afford to buy, you're making your own clothes and you're growing your own food. You just don't have money. And imagine that living in that kind of poverty, you lose 10% of your savings, just like that. And it's actually deeper than that because the coins were probably, she would have worn them on her veil as, because it was a part of her dowry, which is, uh, for those of us who live in the 21st century in North America, a dowry was money that the father gave to his daughter on her wedding day to act as an insurance policy. It was a way of saying, this is your share, and if something ever happens to your husband and you don't have any kids to protect you, this is your life insurance policy. This will support you for the rest of your life. She hadn't just lost a coin or 10% of her savings. She'd actually lost 10% of her life insurance. She had lost her pension. She had, she had lost her ability to survive for the long haul. I mean, no wonder this woman freaks out. Right? Like I lose stuff all the time and I freak out. I lose my keys, I lose my iPod and my Kobo and my sunglasses. I, like, I lose stuff all the time and I freak out. Like I, I would turn the house inside out, but I don't want Chris to know that I've lost something again. So I kind of do it quietly and discreetly when she's not home and whatever. But I like, I like totally freak out, but I couldn't imagine how I would respond if I lost a life insurance check. 
I mean, I suppose I can't imagine I'd probably drop dead and then I wouldn't need the check and it all comes full circle. But, but the point is she's like freaking out, legitimately freaking out because she has just lost her ability to survive. And then she finds it and she goes bananas and look who she invites to the party. She invites her neighbors and friends, not her husband and kids. She's living off this money. She has no husband and no kids. I mean, no wonder she's so relieved. No wonder she's so prepared to throw a party when she finds it. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, the religious leaders, she says, you see that woman? That's me. And you see that coin of inestimable value, that coin of incredible worth, that coin that is immeasurable beyond monetary value and sentimental value, and it's just immeasurably valuable to me in every conceivable way. Do you see that coin? That's them. Of crazy, insane value to me to the point where, given the opportunity to be in relationship with them, I throw a party, I go bananas, I will stop at nothing to invite them into relationship and then I just go crazy when they agree and we, I finally get to relate to them, to be in a relationship with them. I just, I can't contain myself because they're that valuable to me. They matter that much to me. That's, you read through the gospel stories, that's the way Jesus lived, constantly in relationship with people that society had rejected. The, the contagiously ill, the terminally ill, the mentally ill, the demon-possessed. Jesus would hang out with rich people, but he'd hang out with poor people. Jesus would hang out with the super-religious, he'd hang out with the irreligious. He hung out with everybody, he hung out with kids. If you can believe it, there was nobody in the ancient world lower on the social ladder than kids. Kids had presumably value to their parents and no other value in all of society. Nobody cared what happened to kids. Because they were kids. They have no value to add, nothing to offer. They aren't worth anything to society. And so the disciples, you know, these people are bringing their kids to Jesus and the disciples are trying to shoo them away. Jesus is too important to hang out with kids. And Jesus is like, forget that. Tell them to come. I want them on my lap. And Mark says that he was hugging them and they were sitting on his lap. And if my kids are any gauge, they were pulling at his beard and they were spitting on his, exerbiting his neck and, you know, Showing them their owie on their finger and like, and Jesus just drinking it in. We're going to talk next week about what it looks like to love kids the way Jesus loved them. There's a story in John chapter 4 where Jesus is hanging out with a Samaritan woman, which is kind of a double whammy because as a Samaritan, she's the wrong uh, ethnic group because she's half Gentile and she's the wrong religious group because the Jews considered the Samaritans to be a part of a cult. So it's kind of a double whammy. And then another whammy, so it's a triple whammy because she's a woman. In the ancient world, men don't associate with women that they're not related to in public. And so Jesus had no business hanging out with this woman. And he's like, no, forget that. I don't care about social taboo. This woman matters too much to me. That's Jesus' mentality. He's never met a person who is not of infinite worth and value to him. And actually, it's, it goes one step beyond that. Because not just that he values you, it's that he needs you. He needs you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says this, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And by Christ, he means the church. He says, listen, let me tell you about what the church is like. 
The church is like this body that represents Jesus, right? When Jesus was alive as a human being on the earth, he did all this stuff in his body, including living this life of radical inclusivity where everybody to him was of inestimable worth, immeasurable value. He just longed to be in relationship with everybody. That's what he did when he was alive in his body, but he's not here anymore. He's taken his body and he's gone back to heaven. And so what he's left behind, Paul says, is kind of a virtual body called the church. It's sort of like his avatar. The church is the physical presence of Jesus in the world, something that he controls from heaven in order to, through the church, through this new body that he has, continue his life and his work and his mission, which in part includes being radically inclusive and inviting everybody into relationship with himself. And Paul says, if you're connected to Christ, you're connected to this body. You're a part of this body that is, that is living the life and mission and work of Jesus into the world. You are as connected to everybody sitting around you as my arm is to my torso or as my head is to my neck, which is good because otherwise I'd lose it. <laughs> You're connected to the body. You're an integral part of what Jesus is doing in the world, even in those moments where you don't feel all that connected. And I know that you don't, because I've heard you say it. People will say, I show up at church and I stand by myself and everybody else is connected. Everybody else is friends. Everybody else is in relationship with me. Or people will say, you know, it's a Mennonite church, so... Basically, at the, at the center, there are all these families that are all related to other. If you're not related to the right people, you really you just can't break into the community. Or people will say, you know, at the core of the church is a group of friends who've been here forever, and all of the rest of us who are new, we just stand on the outside, and we're looking in. Or, you know, somebody just recently said, I came to your church, and I loved everything, but I stood in the cafe, and nobody came to talk to me. I was all alone. So I'm not coming back, basically. I know that there are times and maybe oftentimes where you don't feel connected in the community the way the Bible describes you as being connected. But I want to let you in on a little secret. I want to tell you something about that feeling. And the secret is this. Everybody in the community feels that way. Everybody. You sit where you are right now and take a look around and look at the backs of heads and sides of faces, whatever, whoever you can see, everybody that's sitting around you feels exactly the same way as you do. That we all show up and we all wish that we were more connected than we really are. We all show up and we all feel like everybody else has got more friends than we are, that we're the only ones standing outside. Everybody feels that. That's why we're doing this series. That's why we have to talk about this because that's real in our community that everybody feels left out. Everybody. Do you, do you want to know, can I tell you where I spent Super Bowl Sunday? I spent Super Bowl Sunday watching the Super Bowl in my living room by myself, all alone, on my laptop. And do you know why I was watching the Super Bowl all by myself on my laptop? First of all, because my kids wouldn't give me the TV. Not that I'm bitter. <laughs> 
But I was watching the Super Bowl on my laptop in my living room all by myself because nobody invited me to a Super Bowl party. 1,000, 1,500 people in the community, not one single person said to me, I would like you in my home on Super Bowl Sunday. I would consider myself to be as connected and as in as anybody in this room. And if you got an invitation to a Super Bowl party, you're more connected than I am. And this isn't a pity party. I actually really enjoyed the evening home alone. But everybody wishes they got invited out more. Everybody. And the truth be told is that the real reason, the ultimate reason why I was sitting at home alone watching Super Bowl was because for the first time in years, my wife and I decided not to host a party. We just didn't have it in us this year. If I had picked up the phone and called some people, I would have had friends to watch the Super Bowl with. And this is the point. When, when Paul says you're all a part of the body of Christ, you're all a part of the ongoing mission of what Jesus is doing in the world, including spreading the radically inclusive love of God everywhere, this is a part of it. You are a part of that mission of creating radical inclusivity in the community of faith, of being responsible to live out this vision of community that Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 4. I love this. He says, you want to know what the church is? Above all, he says, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And anyone who speaks should do as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, you know what I think about when I think about the church? I think about a community that loves each other deeply enough just to tidal wave and wash away all the junk that sin introduces into relationship. A, a tidal wave of love that just absolutely wipes out the destructive power of sin. That manifests itself in glad and willing hospitality in opening our hearts and opening our lives and opening our homes and opening ourselves to each other gladly, hospitably. By the things that we say to each other, the words that we speak, and by the ways in which we serve each other in love. That's the church. It is a community of radically inclusive hospitality, of open hearts, open lives, and open homes rooted in the deep love of God and lived out in the way that we speak to each other and the way that we serve each other. That's, that's what this is all about. And the, the New Testament says that if you're a part of the community of faith, you have a vital role to play in making that real. And I know that in your head you just said, well, not me, but I understand other people do. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. Paul would look at us and say that if the introvert should say, because I'm not an extrovert, I'm not really a part of this mission of creating a community of inclusivity. 
Or the shy person would say, well, because I'm not a public personality, I'm, I'm not, this isn't really my thing. This is what, uh, this feels more like a hand thing and I'm just a foot, so I'm, gonna, so I'm just gonna stay over here. Or, or some quiet people say, well, because I'm not a talkative person, you know, this really is, this inclusive, that's not my, pulse is nonsense. Just because you don't have certain kinds of gifts doesn't mean that you're less valuable in the mission of the body. The hand can't do what the hand's got to do unless it's got a foot to carry it there. Paul says everyone is involved. Okay, so you're, so you're not the hostess with the mostess. You're not going to be the person throwing the massive block parties and flooding your home with flocks of random strangers who are all going to become best friends and live the rest of your days in a retirement home together. So that's not you. Could you be the person who says to a newer person, hey, I hear you're not in a life group. Do you want to come to mine? Could you be the person who says to that kid's mom who's standing in the playground, hey, would you ever want to get a cup of tea? Could you be the person who turns your head to the person standing or sitting next to you in the arena or at the church and say, hi, my, my name's Mike. Could you be that person? Could you be the person who elbows the extrovert standing beside you and say, I think that person's all alone. Can you go talk to them? So maybe you're not a words person because Peter says hospitality comes in the form of what we say and what we do. Maybe you're not a words person. Is there something you could do to make people feel loved? A meal you could drop off, a driveway you could shovel, a cup of coffee you could deliver, a, a door you could hold open, something, anything to make somebody feel welcomed and included and wanted and loved in our community. Because that's a part of why God has joined you with all the rest of us created you as a person of immeasurable value and then connected you to all of the rest of us so that you and we together could communicate to everybody else that they are people of immeasurable value. That's why he created you. That's why he called you. That's why he empowered you. Philippians chapter four, so I can do everything in Christ who gives me strength. We sing that song that says that God raised Jesus from the dead and now that same power lives in us. God's power raised a human being who was dead back to life. I think God can give us the courage to walk across the lobby and say, hi, are you new? That's what this is about. The logic is exactly the opposite of what it is that you thought was true. That if you're here and a part of the community and not feeling included and not feeling welcomed and not feeling loved, rather than standing on the sidelines waiting for somebody to approach you and invite you in, why not generate inclusivity by walking across the room and inviting somebody into relationship with you? If you've been feeling like there's this inner core of people and you just can't break into the group, why not intentionally start your own group of friends and let other people break into yours? The answer to the inclusivity problem 
is not to, to stand back and wait until somebody invites you in. It's to be the person who steps forward and invites other people into your life that lives with an open heart and an open life and an open home and extends the radical hospitality and inclusivity that's rooted in the love of God and expressed by the way that you speak and the things that you do, how you serve the people around you with the love of Jesus Christ to make them feel welcomed and wanted and included. And that, friends, I tell you, will make all the difference. And I know it's true because my friend Kim Yancey has lived it. Listen to her story. 